Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. On the heels of my conversation with Front Porch Assistant Editor Matt Stewart, we again keep things in-house as I welcome the man who started building the porch over a decade ago. Mark Mitchell is the Dean of Academic Affairs at Patrick Henry College in Northern Virginia and the current president of Front Porch Republic. He's also the author of several books, the latest of which is called Plutocratic Socialism, where he defends the role of productive private property in an ungrounded age. This is John Murdoch, and my guest today is Mark Mitchell, author of Plutocratic Socialism, The Future of Private Property and the Fate of the Middle Class. Welcome, Mark. Hello, John. It's good to talk to you. Well, Mark, let me start off with our regular brass platoon opener question. What does home mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Well, the first thing that came to my mind actually was was sitting on my uh, front porch, actually looking out across the field in front of my house. Um, there's there's three Angus steers out there that I that I am raising, and so I like keeping an eye on them, just watching them, and sitting with my my wife and my kids. And someone asked me the other day what I did over the weekend, and um, and I said, well, I just you know hung out at home and she was a little bit, uh, um, uh, scornful. Uh, didn't you do it? You know, didn't do anything interesting or fun, you know, go out and spend money. And, and, uh, I told her, I just really like being at home. Um, I, I like hanging out with my family. I, I love the view from my house. Uh, just yesterday I went down to, uh, Washington, D.C. It's about an hour drive. I was trying to calculate when the last time I'd been down there was. I think it was maybe four years ago or so. Um, and just going down yesterday reminded me once again why I don't like to go down there. Um, it's just traffic and it's and it's, and it's just confining and, uh, um, and crowded. And... Uh, and everybody seems to be in a hurry and and doing their thing, and I can see a kind of intoxication that, that would be possible with that. But just getting back, and the funny thing is, I got back uh, late afternoon and just immediately changed clothes and went out and chopped wood. I thought this is just so nice. It's physical and it's doing something real and productive, I guess. It's also satisfying when you beat on a big old piece of elm with a sledgehammer and a couple of wedges and, and it finally splits and you've gained a little victory over, over, uh, over the world, I suppose. And uh, um, as, as Wendell Berry says, and others have noted, right, splitting wood warms you uh, maybe three times, right? You have to, you have to cut it uh, down 
then you have to then you chop it and then eventually it's going to heat your house so i just like being at home um i'm a homebody i i used to have this, this kind of rambling desire to see the world i've traveled around the world and and seen things but i'm increasingly becoming more of a hobbit as i get older and i and i just like i like being at home with my people i find that to be very satisfying so home is 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 my house and my little piece of property and my family and and that's where i like to be and as one who lived in that uh, washington dc beltway for over a decade i can uh, i can understand where you're coming from on the desire to to leave yeah. it after a brief visit uh, and for those playing along at home uh, with our Wendell Berry reference over under, uh, it came in at under four minutes. So thank you. Well, well, well done, Mark. We we always we usually get at least one Wendell in, and we got we've got one in early here. Uh, and you started with your, of course, your, your first thought was of of your front porch, and you mm-hmm. have been uh, associated with the effort Front Porch Republic for quite a while. I would, I think, I think you were one of the uh, Front Porch OGs. Uh, that is correct. It was sort of uh, my brainchild. Um, I was I was in at Princeton University on a uh, sabbatical year in the in two thousand eight and two thousand nine course that's that's the year that the world fell apart at least that was the last time the year fell apart it, it or the world fell apart it, it it seems like it's about due for another and i was thinking about what was going on and just talking to friends um either directly or through email and so on and and it didn't seem like there was an outlet for sensible conversation about the problem there were there were folks on the on the on the left decrying you know um, the, the abuses of big business and there were folks on the right saying what we just need is more uh, you know hands off business and let let the uh, market resolve its own problems. Oh, it's magic. Yeah, uh, this this the invisible hand sort of becomes this surrogate deity um, that that is infallible and and, and omnipotent. And and uh, there was no one pointing out, as far as I could tell, that there this this kind of incestuous union of big business and big government that were actually facilitating each other's growth and each other's grotesque sort of distortions. At the time Patrick Deneen was just down the hall from me, so I went and talked to him, and then I called up uh, a friend who who's energetic and creative and entrepreneurial and i knew he's he he was thinking the same things and that's jeremy beer and and so jeremy and i kind of cooked this idea up of let's start a a website initially um and we got uh Deneen and and uh, bill kaufman and and jason peters and a few others kate alton and 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 just started talking about what we could do and how we could maybe affect the conversation in a way that we thought uh, would be useful. And so the fall of 2008, we sort of put the uh, the background stuff together and then we launched, I believe it was the first week of March, 2009. Um, we've been plugged along since there. We've had, I, I uh, edited the online, the, uh, the, the, the website for 
I don't know how many years. And then uh, Jeff Paulette took that over and now um, Jeff Bilbro is doing it. And in a few years in, we, or a couple years in, we, we uh, launched our annual conference and that's that's been uh, an annual thing, uh, except for two years missed with COVID. Uh, we launched a book imprint. Now we have local culture, a, uh, a biannual journal, uh, and so we're 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 doing good things, good work. I think interesting thing we've always just gotten by on a shoestring, um, because curious, uh, no no big money people seem to want to uh, to contribute to a uh, an organization that is. Uh, promoting local, small, human-scale uh, institutions and solutions. Everybody seems to be interested in, in, uh, in, in, in big things and in uh, world-changing enterprises. And if you want to chase the money from foundations and big funders, you gotta, you got to talk the, the game, you got to play the game, and that is think in terms of monumental, world-changing enterprises that always involve significant concentrations of power and uh and and what's lost in the in the whole sweep of that enterprise is is a concern for the local the particular uh the kinds of solutions that can't be managed from the top down but can be very well handled from from uh, local communities people uh, taking care of their own and uh and and loving and caring uh, for their own communities and i was once a part of a well-meaning university whose slogan was why not change the world and <laughs> my response was well you can't right and uh, this idea of global citizenship and changing the world yeah and front porch has been a good reminder of of our limited scale mm. uh and the fact that we live better within that actually human scale. Well, we live as human beings. You know, it's it's a, uh, a, a an interesting uh, fact. Uh, you know that uh, you think of of the words of Christ. Even he says, uh, "Love your neighbor as yourself." He doesn't say love the world. He doesn't say love humanity. And sort of the alter ego of uh, of Christ in some respects, Dostoevsky's um, Ivan Karamazov. You know he. He's very clear on this. He says, I love humanity. I love mankind, but I hate my neighbor. He's, he's just a stinking nuisance. And you know, he, he, he smells bad. He irritates me. He's hard to love. I don't want to love him, but I want to love and I do love humanity. And that's just a, a kind of false, bloodless love that costs nothing. It's sentimentalism rather than love. And, uh, and I think the more that we can think in terms of human scale loves, uh, community loves, loving one's neighbor, the better we're going to, uh, to live and the more effective we'll be actually at changing the world. Reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard. It hmm. says, descending to particulars always helps to clear the mind. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's a good reminder for academics because we very easily sort of uh, just shoot right up into abstractions and uh, we're comfortable there. But what's lost is the, uh, the messiness, and, and, but also the, uh, the realness. The real is always messy and, uh, and, and impossible to fully circumscribe. There's always a messy remainder when we're dealing with the real. 
And that's why you see some uh, uh, system builders, in philosophy and, and theology even, who, who uh, want to create systems where there's no remainder, where everything is nicely wrapped up and uh, you put a bow on it. And I think the uh, motivation is pretty clear. It's to control. It's to dominate uh, reality uh, intellectually uh, by, by circumscribing it. But in so doing, you always do violence to reality. You always leave something out. You're creating a false reality. System so perfect that no man needs to be good. Precisely. Precisely. Uh, well, you have put together some of those thoughts into a what's really a handy, concise primer of sorts for the Front Porch Mindset, your latest book, Plutocratic Socialism. When I first saw it, when I first received it, it brought to mind another book, just from its size and a bit of its focus, Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. And then as I got into it, I saw that you were making a number of homages to to Weaver along the way. What, What brought Weaver to mind initially was... You know, was as he opens famously by saying an, a, another book about the decline of the West. But he he saw as one of the remaining bulwarks, uh, one of the things to build around uh, what he called the last metaphysical right yeah. was private property. That's right. That's right. Uh, and I'll even quote from it here. He says, when we survey the scene to find something which the rancorous leveling wind of utilitarianism has not brought down, we discover one institution, shaken somewhat, but still strong and perfectly clear in its implications. This is the right of private property. Mm. Your book, though, is telling us that that bulwark is under full attack, full assault. You have an interesting quote that you use. You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. <laughs> Who yeah. said that and why are they wrong? Yeah, that's a tagline from uh, a uh, ad campaign um, from the World Economic Forum, and it was a it was a set of predictions for 2030. And uh, the first prediction, uh, and and it was a, a nice visual image of a kind of hipster uh, young guy in his 20s. He looked like with a uh, satisfied smile on his face. Um, and that was the caption, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Now, that can be read in different ways, right? It can be read uh, as a kind of prediction, a sunny prediction of how this new world uh, will, will emerge. But, but it, it sounds kind of ominous to me, almost like a threat, right? You'll own nothing, buddy, and you'll be happy. And this, this idea of a post-ownership world, uh, is one that that uh, would 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 make Richard Weaver you know, turn over in his grave, and it's this this idea that that we can be happy, and our lives can be less cluttered by the responsibilities and the and the burdens of 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 ownership if we simply become uh, liberated from even the idea of ownership. We turn into a renting society. Where, where we're not tied down by, by property, by things, so we can skim along the surface, ready to, to move in any direction at any time because we are now um, liberated. And so the, the, the promise here is a kind of liberation from um, embodied things, from being tied formally, legally, but, but even metaphysically, I think, to, to stuff. 
And you can see how this even sort of moves into a kind of view of, of, of our own bodies, right? Our bodies are merely a, a potential encumbrance that if we could be liberated from that, that would be even better than the World Economic Forum can imagine. Which is to say this, this whole impulse towards, towards liberation, liberation from physical things, I think is just one more aspect or one step toward uh, the ultimate dream of a kind of transhumanist liberation from embodiment itself. That we, we, we can be sort of opt out of the physical world through the metaverse. We can opt out of, of sexuality, male-female sexuality, that binary by virtue of transgenderism. And ultimately, uh, we can opt out, such as the promise that they're making, from um, mortality itself. When we upload our consciousness to the, uh, to the internet and live happily forever, unencumbered by the burdens and responsibilities and limitations of ownership or, or even embodiment itself. So there's a kind of metaphysical thrust here that, that goes far beyond private property. What I'm suggesting is that private property, and I think Weaver, when he calls private property the last metaphysical right, he's, he's gesturing this direction, right? That it is this, this idea of mindness, something that, that, we, that ownership is something that is, that is, that is private to us, that, that we that we, that it's, well, think of the, the etymology of property. It's, it's proper to us to own property uh, as, as embodied creatures tasked with caring for the creation. There's a kind of uh, fittingness, a propriety to caring for things. And what this promise of you'll own nothing and you'll be happy really turns on uh, and implies is that we won't have to care for anything. But the flip side is someone else will be caring for us. And this is where the ominous uh, nature of that claim, I think, really comes to the fore, is, is that there will be, at least in the background, uh, this, this uh, center of power that will alleviate us from all cares. It's a kind of a unity of, of political power, economic power, technological power, that all comes together and in the process alleviates us of any demands, any responsibilities, any, any cares. Uh, it is a kind of maximalized nanny uh, if you, that, that, will, that will leave us from being adults uh, and ultimately, I think, uh, leave us, uh, alleviate us well, from our humanity, if our humanity is fundamentally tied to um, the fact of our embodiment. So some big questions here. A lot sort of is grounded in, in this idea of property. So you're, you're touching on the sort of reemergence of, of Gnostic themes that we see from yes. time to time in history. Yes. Way to escape our, our, uh, our current reality, which is bad in this way or that, and uh, the dream yeah. of of something else. And of course, part of that from a Christian standpoint is, is proper. There is more to this life than this life, mm -hmm. but uh, like all sin, it, it's, it's the warping of a good 
yeah. ultimately good thing, good desire, transcendence that is even transcends God. Well, that's that's right, and there is a the 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 fact of our embodiment is theologically significant, and I think the goodness of our embodiment is is ratified by you know God who declares His creation good, and then ultimately by the incarnation. That that uh, embodiment is the sort of proper condition. You can even think of of uh, the significance of the resurrection of the body uh, that 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 Christians affirm that our proper condition isn't a disembodied soul it is it is embodiment which means necessarily a kind of uh, spatial localized um, condition that we're not um, suited to infinitude um, and, and in the process we we find ourselves having to ask the question what's the proper way to live given the fact of our embodiment given the goodness of our embodiment and and uh, the the idea that we are stewards and caretakers of of the created order uh, is is something that's significant, and we need to take that seriously. And when we think in terms of stewardship, when we think in terms of being caretakers, we're right back to this question: Can you be? Can can any one of us be a caretaker of the world? Well, no. We're, we're our our embodiment, our spatial limitations, our finitude. Uh, indicates that that we're not equal to that task, and therefore there's a scale that's proper to our care, and it, it is necessarily local and 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 spatially uh, and temporally limited. Uh, it's it's something that matches the the human condition, and therefore the care for particular pieces of property, particular artifacts, particular institutions, uh, are all good things that we need to we need to be oriented by. But it's always rooted in the particular. We, we can't escape that into some kind of uh, abstract universalism. That's simply not um, in keeping with the human condition. Your words are bringing to mind a conversation I had with, with Wendell Berry on his front porch, and we talked a bit about the incarnation. And I think uh, Mr. Berry's words on the importance of the incarnation was that it gives value to all flesh. Yeah. And uh, there's wisdom in that. Uh, let's turn, though, to your your book. Uh, mm. So against this idea of the particular, the proper scale, you see the threat of plutocratic socialism. So we think of plutocrats yeah. as those who have too much, socialists as those who don't want to own anything individually. How do these two get together? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a kind of perverse um, mouthful, really. I'm tr- obviously trying to, to coin a term to describe a, a dynamic relationship that I think is increasingly evident. Plutocracy is simply ruled by the wealthy. And it's important to point out that what I'm arguing is not a kind of simple missive against wealth. There's always going to be wealthy individuals and there'll be those without as much wealth. Any free society is necessarily going to be characterized by some degree of inequality. But what I'm, I'm increasingly concerned by is, is a, a cast of mind that sees wealth as a kind of indicator of moral superiority that 
creates or fosters what I call a kind of plutocratic psychology such that if I'm a member of this class, if I have a certain amount of wealth or access to, to uh, those with wealth, uh, the rules don't apply to me. I, I can play by other rules. I can violate the laws and not find myself in jail. I can run roughshod over traditional uh, norms and values and uh, enjoy the, the benefits of risky behavior and offloading the, the consequences to the public. Uh, I mean, that's simply what too big to fail turned out to be. Uh, if you're big enough, aggressive enough, and wield enough uh, economic power or, or, or create the uh, perception that you do, uh, you, can, you can run risky um, investments if you fail. Uh, the public picks up the dime. If you succeed, you become wildly wealthy. That's a perverse gaming of a system. Everyone can't do it. You, John, can't. You're not too big to fail. So if you make risky investments and fail, you uh, will lose everything. And if you if you do things, if you if you run fast and loose with the law, you'll be prosecuted and, and put into jail. And there are those who have figured out how to game that. And it's interesting that that uh, um, Charles Koch uh, has made the same claim. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, all have said the system is rigged. And when you find people on both the left and the right uh, saying the system is rigged to favor some against others, well, that that I think that's an indication that maybe we need to pay attention. So this plutocratic class is exists. But here's the problem. In a democratic age, people love equality more than anything else. And so there's a kind of haunting reminder for those who, who, are, who are playing this game, who are trying to rig the system, that they at least have to appear like they are one of the people, that they, that they are uh, sympathetic, that they, are, that they have the concerns for the, the common man in mind. Otherwise, they appear morally illegitimate. And, and so you're going to find, you see this over and over again, them advancing uh, policies and recommendations that, that, that uh, appear generous, uh, that appear increasingly to expand the power of the state to help those who are less fortunate, which is just another way of, of articulating a kind of a socialist impulse. That is, socialism is a kind of, of redistribution of wealth, a nationalization of private property, of capital. Uh, now, here's where things get interesting. It'll never happen. Socialist revolutions never occur, and plutocrats don't want them to succeed because a successful socialist revolution would mean the end of the plutocratic advantage. And so they have to play the game. They have to stoke the fire sufficiently to alleviate a sense of guilt and also to protect themselves from being uh, accused of, of gaming the system. So they have to look like they are on the, on the side of those who are downtrodden or oppressed or victimized. But all the while, they're strengthening their position so that they don't uh, lose uh, their their power, their wealth, and status. And the ironic thing is, those who learn to game the system from the other side, that is, those that, that become spokesmen for, spokesmen for the people, um, actually gain power, status, and wealth by learning to play the game. 
uh, you, you hear um, Bernie Sanders talking about socialism and socialist policies and how much we need to dispense with capitalism, and he owns three houses. I mean, what's up with this? This is this. Uh, this seems incongruous. And here's, I think, the secret dynamic that would have just stunned Marx and and uh, and and made him throw up his hands in despair. Uh, his whole structure, the communist revolutionary structure that he imagines, is a bourgeoisie class, the uh, property owning class, the capitalist, consolidating power. To a point when things get so unjust, the proletarian class, the propertyless worker class, uh, rises up in revolution and uh, overthrows the capitalists and institutes this new uh, communist regime. Well, in plutocratic socialism, it appears that the capitalists and the leadership of the disgruntled propertyless proletarian class have kind of made a secret pact to work together. And what they've done is secured their positions, which means securing power, property, and status, all at the expense of a kind of ongoing festering wound at the expense of those who, who, who don't have property. You keep the, uh, the people uh, ginned up, angry, anxious, insecure, which means they will look to the centers of power to alleviate their insecurity. And all the while, power is increasingly concentrated into the hands of, of a class of people who claim they can help. And so just think of the last three years. COVID is a remarkable instance of just this. Insecurity. You need to make people think that they are uh, they're on the cusp of, of, of kind of worldwide uh, annihilation of the human species. Uh, you need to make them afraid of other people afraid of their neighbors, afraid even of their own families. This is a kind of totalitarian move, atomizing individuals, making them afraid so that they look to centers of power in order to alleviate the insecurity. And those with the access, the wealth, um, and, and the power secure their position. And the ongoing insecurity really continues to facilitate that. And what's, lo what's lost, and my argument, and this is kind of bringing this uh, full circle, is the only way you can, that you can prevent this dynamic from playing out its full course is with a strong, vibrant middle class. A middle class of individuals who own enough property to be somewhat independent but not enough property to be a menace that, that don't think uh, as, as plutocrats, but think as independent citizens who can care for themselves and their families and their communities. A kind of interdependence of property ownership at the local level with a strong middle class is the only way to alleviate this perverse dynamic that I'm calling plutocratic socialism. And regarding that property and the type of property, you focus on a difference between property that has a production value and merely mm. an exchange value. Yeah. Walk us through that distinction and why it's important. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one that, that Marx and Marxists have, 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 uh, have laid out. And uh, if, you, if you think of, of uh, your property merely in terms of, of a wage or of money, the money you possess has no value 
it, it, in terms of, of production. You can't make anything with a dollar bill, but you can exchange that dollar bill for something, some, some uh, concrete property. You can exchange it for food or a, a tool. Uh, if you have enough dollars, you can, you can buy a cow or a, or a house uh, or, a, or a bit of land. There's some land, that or rather some property that has both exchange value and productive value. So you could think of, of a hammer, uh, a tool, right? You could, you could exchange it for something, either trade it or sell it on Craigslist. Uh, but you can also do something with it. You can, you can engage the world by the medium of that property. That, that property becomes a kind of self into the world. And, and in that sense, it makes you bigger. It makes you uh, substantial. It, it also expands your, your creative presence, if you will, in the world. And I think that's an important point, that if we, if we think in terms of productive property, our, the scope of our, of our personality and the way that we can personally engage the world is expanded. And that kind of engagement... And the ownership of property calls forth a number of virtues. Uh, the virtue of care—that is, if you own if you own property that has some kind of productive value, you need to take care of it. You need to think of it. You need to you need to consider its presence into the future, which means you care for it now so that it can have its same productive power or ability into the future. And therefore, you're, you're thinking in terms not simply of immediate gratification, but of future, future conditions of both you and of your property. Um, you think more explicitly about the world, I think, in concrete terms. When we have property to care for, we, we can, we can um, exercise personal responsibility. We can exercise generosity. That is, to give something to your neighbors, to help care for your neighbors, requires a kind of engagement with them through property. Uh, and so one of the things I'm arguing is that the virtues that are called forth or cultivated with the ownership of property are some of the very virtues that are necessary for healthy democratic citizens. And so there's a connection between property ownership and uh, democratic citizenship. And this is something that, that the American founders, I think, understood very clearly, that they over and over again were, were concerned about the ownership of property, not just as a fact, but as a, as a possibility, that people should, and they just, it was just a kind of a default assumption that citizens wanted to own property. And even those that didn't looked forward to the time when they could own property. So they were already thinking like property owners, even those that didn't own property because they're projecting their, their expectations into the future. Uh, and, and part of that future self, if you will, that expectation for themselves was to be a property owner. And this is just something that as I was looking through the literature of, of the American colonial experience and the American founding era, uh, this is just an underlying assumption that citizens are going to uh, want to own property, which is such a dramatic shift. If you think in terms of that quote that you, uh, that you started with, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. 
the American founders would have been appalled at such a notion. And you say that the dream today is of a nomadic proletarian. Yeah, yeah. A, 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 a Gnostic and nomadic. You already brought up that Gnostic element. But, but uh, if we see the human good, see a kind of successful, happy life as one that is characterized by maximal emancipation from constraint so that we can skim along the surface of things that we can turn on a dime if uh, that we can that we can go anywhere and be anything well that means we need to as much as possible shake off the constraints of obligation of responsibility and and ownership of property just includes that and so, so there's a kind of, of aspiration to what we might call a false understanding of human liberty, that liberty is seen as a kind of maximal emancipation. It, again, as we, we said a little while ago, it's a false anthropology. It's a false ideal based on a false understanding of what a human being is. But it's, it's rooted in this uh, a false understanding of freedom. And when we recognize that the best kind of life, the best things in life, only come in the wake of commitments, of, of obligations that we, that we take up and, and recognize, maybe recognize not even as something that we've chosen, but that have chosen us, right? You can't choose uh, the family you're born into, the place that you are born, um, the nation, that you are a citizen of, at least in the in the initial move there, and when we simply uh, take those givens and 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 build on those as as gifts rather than impediments to our freedom, we see the world very differently. Starting with this idea of the giftedness of all things induces in us a kind of disposition of gratitude that when we take it seriously, gives birth to lives of responsibility, uh, responsibility to ourselves, to our, limit, our, to our own limits, but then responsibility to the people and places that we've been given and that uh, to whom we've been given. And, 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 uh, and we then gratefully accept the obligations rather than seeing obligations as a kind of impediment uh, and, and an offense. And that's a very different way of thinking. But you can't get to you'll own nothing and be happy if you take responsibilities as a good thing and obligations that are, are as, as gifts that are proper to human beings. This seems to be related to what I would say is the death of the idea of noblesse oblige you write, a decadent aristocracy is one in which men claim the privileges of status but ignore its responsibilities. Yeah. So, yeah. in a sense, we've got worse rich people today than we used to. This is something that, that um, has been pointed out for a while. Tocqueville actually points it out in uh, Democracy in America. You know, he traveled in America in 1831, wrote a, a magnificent book. It was published in two parts over the next several years. And interestingly enough, when he visited America, uh, he said in, in his book, in America, there are no proletarians. 
that, that nobody thinks like a proletarian. Everybody owns property or aspires to own property. That, that this is what, this is a kind of characteristic that, that uh, is, is common to all Americans. Now, that's a remarkable thing. And it's, and it's remarkable when you compare how many today feel themselves and are, in fact, kind of insecure citizens who, who, who think of themselves not as property owners, but as clients of the state. And, and uh, that's, a, that's a significant shift. And what Tocqueville noted is, is that when you have uh, a democratic society where everybody's characterized by equality, of equality of conditions, and everybody can sort of move from one class to another. What he worried about is the emergence of, of a new kind of aristocracy, an aristocracy that was rooted in industry, he said, where you have those who own the capital becoming increasingly insulated from those who are simply working, and the, the talents and abilities that uh, large-scale industry required uh, would become increasingly concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And those who are the laborers would be increasingly um, bereft of the kinds of aspirations and talents and really the imaginative structure to see themselves as, as owners. And when you have this kind of separation uh, that's not rooted in, in a kind of traditional aristocracy, uh, he was worried that, that uh, the relationship between the working class and the capitalist class would, would become such that they would see themselves only in, in related in, in contractual terms. And, and therefore, uh, the, the payment of a wage is all the kind of obligation that's owed as long as there's a day's work is given. And what would be lost, he thought, is any notion of noblesse oblige. And that is the obligation of nobility that saw a kind of responsibility to care for more than the bottom line, but to care for those the, the workers and individuals who were essentially under their responsibility. And, and he saw the possibility of, the, of emergence of a new kind of aristocracy that he thought that would be harder and, and less caring than, than even the aristocracy of, of France that he did a lot of work studying. And so this, this idea of the obligation of property is something that I emphasize near the end of the book. And I, and I argue that property has to be appreciated widely in a democracy. Because if you have 51% of the population who are without property, have no care for property, and see a system that's rigged and therefore use the mechanisms of of government to to reallocate property, essentially to plunder one class to benefit another. Uh, all you have is class warfare and really the breakdown of any kind of coherent form of government. And therefore, I argue that those who own property in our day need to uh, be very cognizant of a kind of responsibility to protect property and to encourage the expansion of property. That is, even if that means encouraging the ownership of property uh, in such a way that, that, that my own property may not expand as much as I, I want, would want it to in some kind of, of uh, other situation, I need to be concerned with how my fellow citizens think about property. 
and therefore the obligation of property ownership implies a kind of concerted effort to seek to eliminate policies that undermine property ownership, encourage property or policies that, that, that expand property ownership, uh, eliminate barriers to entry to on entrepreneurs, for instance, regulations that, that undermine uh, the capacity and the uh, ability for people to own property need to be need to be rethought. And ultimately, what we need to do is revitalize what we might call a culture of private property that people need to, uh, unlike that young man in the ad, uh, looking forward to a day where they'll own nothing and be happy, need to recognize that the proper situation for a human being is to care for something and to do it well and to care for that piece of property, to care for stories, to care for uh, institutions and ideas in such a way that we tend them well and pass them on to, to our, our children and grandchildren. What are the, the prospects for this vision today? Uh, it seems we are in a dynamic time. Yeah. I mean, President Trump bludgeoned many aspects of the prior GOP orthodoxy, yeah. especially around the idea that the, the markets would solve all. Yeah. But, but in that fracturing, we're now seeing elements of the right. I think of um, Saurabh Amari, who now calls himself a pro-life New Dealer, who are saying, yeah, you know what? The state's not so bad. We, we, need, we just need the state on our side to, to impose our vision, which is in many ways an anti-liberty idea. Uh, you know, we're in this, in this swirling time. How do we return to this Tocquevillian vision of a world where we have property rightly distributed and cared for? Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I do think we're sort of at an inflection point, um, where, where things could pick up speed. I mean, even think one of the things that, that disrupts property ownership and and solidifies this uh, situation of plutocratic socialism, as I said earlier, is just a perception of insecurity, of of sort of looming crisis. There's a difference between what you might call an acute crisis and a and a kind of chronic sense of of crisis. An acute crisis, you know, there's a there's a meteorite that's going to hit the earth. You know, what do we do? Or or we're, we've been invaded by Canada. Let's take let's do what we need to do in order to 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 alleviate the uh, the crisis. But what we're seeing increasingly is a kind of chronic crisis chron that, that that stimulates a chronic sense of insecurity. COVID is a great example. But just think of what even with with COVID is has gone away or is it coming back? I'm not even sure. It's hard to keep up. But it doesn't matter because what we have is kind of climate crisis that we're that we're, we're being told about over and over again i have no idea really even of of it doesn't even matter about the science of the climate thing the way it's handled is is to just increasingly convince uh citizens that there is a crisis that is so significant so the implications are so drastic and sweeping and there's, there's nothing that can be done uh, other than cede all of our power to an institution, organization, or an apparatus that, that can solve the problem. And climate is a great example because it can't be 
solved at a local level. You know, you can't you can't uh, ask your city council to take care of the climate problem. It doesn't make sense to talk to, uh, about that at the state level, but it doesn't make sense to talk about it in any coherent fashion at the national level either. It becomes a kind of excuse to further centralized power even beyond the nation state. And so this this question of, of power becomes a, a real one. And it's and it's always the problem. I mean, politics is is always about power, and and power, you know, as what James Madison said so memorably, power is an encroaching nature. Power just tends to want to consolidate and concentrate. And so, what do you do about it? And the whole constitutional order, uh, the Constitution Convention, and all the debates around that was really trying to figure out how how to how to deal with power. But the flip side is you can't eliminate power. Power is, you, you might say, necessary and dangerous. And, uh, and so we need to ask how, 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 how do we allocate power? And one of the things that I think is really important is to recognize that property and power go hand in hand. That, that who controls the property controls the power. And so to the extent that we want to think about uh, limiting concentrations of power, Think about uh, decentralizing power to some degree means that we have to have property widely owned. And that means we have to have, first, people who want to own property. And so there's a, there's a, there's a kind of psychology of property ownership that has to be revitalized uh, that doesn't work if, if we are disposed to think that the state or and 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 the uh, sort of technological gurus and corporations are all going to alleviate us from any concern or care for the future. Uh, some of it is is just a scale question. I think this this question of scale, something FPR folks have been talking about from right at the beginning, is so crucial. And what we're seeing is a kind of steady momentum. Uh, in terms of concentrations of power in a direction that is that just violates everything about propriety of human scale. So where are we at? I think it's a it's a, it's a grim situation, really. Um, it's Marx himself who said the first step in the communist revolution is to win the battle of democracy, which is to say you just have to get fifty one percent of the electorate on your side, and you can you can institute the revolutionary movement through the ballot box. And, and, and what we're seeing is, you know, in debates even about the upcoming election is just, in some respects, is just that. What do we see the role of the state as being? Uh, what do we see the role of individuals and of local communities? And uh, so much of the momentum is going in the direction of concentrations of power, of centralization. And it's, it makes sense if we come to conclude that the, the crises that we're constantly inundated with, the insecurities that we feel, can only be dealt with, can only be alleviated by concentrations of power that far exceed anything that we can muster on our own or in our own communities. And it's a sense of impotence. I think is a real serious problem. A sense of impotence at the level of the individual, a sense of impotence at the level of individual or of local communities that, that is, a, is, is a real problem. And the more we can see ourselves as agents who can in fact 
make a difference. Make a difference in our own communities, uh, with our own neighbors. Uh, we certainly can't solve all the problems, but we don't have to. As you already you, you mentioned right at the beginning, right? We can't we can't change the world, and that's really beyond beyond what we should be aspiring to. But how do we deal with the problems in our local neighborhoods, in our communities? Uh, how do we how do we ensure that our families are being cared for? How do we ensure that our children are being raised in such a way they become uh, citizens who who are disposed to loving their neighbors and caring for those around them? There's a lot to be done, and sometimes I think the uh, the scope of the problems that we hear over and over again, uh, sort of in, a, in an incessant drumbeat through the through the uh, corporate media, uh, induces us to uh, lose sight of our own agency and the things that we can do and the things that we must do. Well, you've touched on a couple items that I wanted to include in a section of the show that one might call the friendly pushback section. Sure. So let's let's go there. And this relates to what you're talking about, what, what I would call the problem of big problems yeah. and the fear that big problems are primarily an excuse for power grabs. Yeah. And I would counter that sometimes big problems are just big problems. The goal is not always the grab of, the, of power for power's sake, but, mm-hmm. but to actually solve the problem. Yes. So anyway, you mentioned covid in your book, you, after outlining some of the concerns, I think legitimate concerns about COVID measures, you say the possibility of abuse is immense and the likelihood of eventual abuse is virtually certain. Rarely are they dialed back. And I have a little note in the margin, say, reading this maskless on a plane. Uh, the point being that things have dialed back. It doesn't. It isn't always a one-way ratchet. Mm. And I'll add on, on on climate. I thought you laid out a very good f- framework for how we should think about climate, mm-hmm. but uh, you don't you don't fully engage in that framework. You don't you don't do the analysis. I understand it's a small book and, and climate's a big yeah. topic to to say well is this a big deal or not? But later in the book, you you take what I would say maybe some some cheap shots at climate concerns. Mm future local culture cover boy Roger Scruton was certainly concerned about the the issue of climate as a big problem, complicated to deal with, uh, but one that was nevertheless a real problem. Yeah. Do you at times worry, and how do you check yourself from falling into sort of conspiratorial doom loops related to these big problems? It's always tempting, isn't it? Conspiratorially, uh, conspiratorial doom loops. That's a that's a good term. Well, like I said, I don't know. Man, I just I don't really have a a a view on the whole climate thing. I'm I'm a political philosopher, and and what I'm concerned about and what I'm looking at is the way these things are used. And and, uh, and and used for a kind of uh, a concentration of power. I mean, here's a good example of the kind of uh, what, what it seems to me is a kind of uh, indication of the unseriousness of the plutocratic class to take their own rhetoric 
and their own behavior seriously. I mean, you 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 get a every year a a, a, a gathering, uh, a migration of the wealthy and important and powerful to Davos, Switzerland. They take their private jets and and they spend a, a few days there listening to people say that the world is going to end if uh, climate uh, isn't controlled, if carbon footprints aren't reduced, uh, and then they issue their missives uh, telling us that we all need to reduce our carbon footprints and that we need to do it, and, and then they take their private jets back home. Well, okay. How serious are they about this? Um, it, it, it's, it, it's either they're not serious or they are so self-important that they imagine that they are somehow exempt from the rules that they're um, uh, seeking to impose on the rest of us. Now, either way, there's a problem, all right? Either they're not serious, and so they're, they're just making hay of this situation, or they're exempting themselves from the moral responsibility that they expect us to, to submit to and live up to. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of this kind of plutocratic psychology. There, there are things that we should be doing to care for the natural world. And this is something that, that, that you mentioned, Roger Scruton. He said there's, a, there's, there's easy, low-hanging fruit here. And one of them he just thought was plastic bags, plastic containers um, that are working, that, 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 uh, that just filling up landfills and then in, in, in uh, disintegrating into you know, microplastics that are filling up the oceans, filling up the airway or the, the waterways, getting into our food and, uh, and really doing serious damage. And, and if you just project that into the future, you know, say 100 years or however many, if we continue doing this, you know, we're, we're all going to be you know, made of plastic. Uh, or there's just going to be plastic running through our veins and, and in our food. It's not going to be healthy. It's, it's going to damage so many things, uh, and so many systems are going to be compromised by that, uh, that, that kind of use of plastics. So surely, he said, and this is in his longest book on, uh, on uh, how to think like a conservative in terms of, uh, of the environment, we should be able to do something with plastic. I completely agree. And, uh, and that can be done, and he thought it should be done even at the level of policy. So that's a use of power in a very concerted way to come up with a, 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 a concerted solution or a, a definite solution. It's not speaking in terms of crisis. It's not trying to, to um, create a, a kind of, of concentration of power rooted in, in uh, uh, ginning up fear. It's simply saying, here's a problem. Clearly, there's, a, there's, there's something that we can do about it. And here's a, a plausible solution. I think you have to navigate between the skeptics who say, well, nothing we can do will if influence the world. The world is resilient and we're not going to hurt it. So we'll just do whatever we want. That's irresponsible. But the other side is, um, if we don't act now, the world is going to end in a fiery ball by 2030. Well, that's silly too. There's a problem. Let's, it, it's, it's really the deal. It, it, it's rooted in a kind of a view of politics. You can deal with politics as a series of crises. And that always is, is, a, is favorable for concentration of power. Or you can deal with political problems as, as political problems that have policy solutions that we can deliberate about 
and come to sensible conclusions about. And I want to steer between those two, those two extremes. And I think that's a good framework. I guess there's a temptation. I think you touched on it with, there's a problem with hypocrites and you, you know, to the Davos crowd and their hypocrisy and going back, uh, I had people tell me, as one who had concern about the, the problem of global warming, if Al Gore's for it, then I'm against it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was yeah. the extent of the thinking, right? And, and by doing so, you're, you're handing over your thought process to the other side and just say, I'm going to be against whatever they are for. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a resentment basis that doesn't get you to that framework that you set, you know, and attributed to scrutiny of let's just take it. Is this a problem and how do we deal with it? And so if we let our our own mindset be co-opted by the resentment we have for those that we resent. Yep. I think it clouds our thinking. Oh, it, 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 indeed it does. And I think that the whole dynamic of plutocratic socialism benefits when that's the default position. When those on the on the left say, well, the people on the right, they like this, therefore it's fascistic and I'm not going to, to go with that. And when the people on the right say, well, those people on the left are for it, that's communists or it's radical, revolutionary, whatever, therefore I reject it. Um, that kind of, of sniping uh, is a distraction from, from real solutions to real problems, and it further solidifies the powers that, uh, that are um, quite happy to let that sniping, sniping go on because it takes the pressure off them. It, it really, uh, in a sense, solidifies their position as arbiters of information and, uh, and, and dollars out of goodies and of, of, and, and of, uh, of power. It's, it's, it's not how politics can be done. That's not politics. That's reactionary uh, sort of gestures that don't result in any kind of wise political policies. And it really does um, distract from the real problems at hand. We seem stuck in this cycle right now on both sides where, yeah. where this resentment of the, the Trumpists resent the AOCs of the world. There's plenty of resentment on the left towards the right, as you note. But I am concerned that we we are not in a place where we where we reward clear thinking aside from labels. Instead, it's just what one team is going to do to obliterate the other team. That's true, and I think though it's it's um, at least exacerbated by and energized by a kind of shift in consciousness to national politics. Yes. When you're thinking in terms of national politics, it's easier to think in those bifurcated categories. If you're thinking about your neighborhood and you're talking to your neighbors about how to how to best resolve a problem, the the kind of bifurcated classifications don't make nearly as much sense. I can talk to my neighbor who has uh, an election sign in their yard is opposed to to the way I'm going to vote. I really don't care. They're, they're my neighbors, and I have, I have to get along with them, and I do. And and the problems that we are dealing with, or that that that, that could come along, really don't map readily onto this bifurcated national um, debate, uh, such as it is. And so, to the extent that our our sort of 
political consciousness has been almost completely colonized by national politics is part of the problem. Yes, I, I agree very much with that. I mean, the, the AOCs of the world are essentially an abstraction. We know uh, those on the right yeah. do not think of her as a real person. And that's something that, that we on the right should work on is that recognizing yeah. that it's a real person made in the image of God. But it's more of an abstraction unto yeah. which to push uh, your, yeah. your hatred. The neighbor, though, right, our interactions with the neighbor hopefully are more complex than that. Uh, and that we are still able to see the humanity in the person, even if even yeah. if they have the the yard sign for someone with whom we greatly disagree. And so that, again, brings us back to what we started on, this theme of the particular and yeah. loving our neighbor as opposed to hating our abstract enemy. Maybe give us some final thoughts on how we need to get back to this local focus and a local focus rooted in property to avoid yeah. this, this nationalization of hate. Yeah. Well, so much depends on just orientation. And, and I think orientation along with a kind of taste, a taste for goods that are necessarily come as a consequence of, of obligations. When you think of the, the goods of marriage only emerge after, after commitment. And the, and the goods of ownership, of, of being a neighbor, of, of being a, a, a parent, all of these things require a kind of a antecedent commitment and obligation. It's, it's the disposition to say, this is the place and the people that I've been given to and to, uh, and to whom I'm obligated, and I'm going to uh, work for their their benefits, and I'm going to give myself to something beyond my own personal gratification. So much of, of what we're dealing with today, I think, is a kind of culture of immediacy. It's exacerbated and, and promoted in so many ways by our technologies. And the, the pushback disposition is essential, that we, that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves our immediate comforts, our immediate pleasures for, for future goods and for the goods of others and the future goods of others. It's a life of service, a life of sacrifice, a life of responsibility. All these things that once people understood almost instinctively are now seen as a kind of, of impediment to my happiness. Um, and what we need to recover is a recognition that, that happiness only comes as a result of those kinds of uh, responsibilities and obligations. And I think property, property ownership and the care for property and bigger than property, even a, a sense of stewardship is an important ingredient in, uh, in recovering that sense of, of obligation and responsibility. Well, Mark Mitchell, the book is Plutocratic Socialism, The Future of Private Property and the Fate of the Middle Class. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's been uh, enjoyable. In the coming weeks, keep an ear out for some of the best of the recent Front Porch Conference at Grove City College. We'll be posting lectures as podcasts for those of us who could not attend. And so, until next time, thanks for pulling up a chair. Find your way home.